morning, church. If you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me now to Matthew chapter 5. It's uh, page 810 of your pew Bibles. And um, Taylor and John's continued hazing of me. Um, for, forgive me if I'm a little nervous this morning, um, but they decided to preach on lust on the Sunday that the bishop is visiting us. <laughs> so, you know, here we are. And, um, okay. I can't, I can't believe y'all. So, I'm, I'm it. I'm it. Um, so we're going to be in verses 27 through 30 of Matthew chapter 5. And uh, for the brief moment we have together this morning, I would like to speak from this text on the topic, let's talk about lust, baby. <laughs> Let us pray. Father Lord, we thank you this morning for the opportunity again to be gathered at your feet, to learn from you, to put our heads, our minds, our hearts into your word, and to come away built up, corrected, reproved, and instructed in righteousness. We ask, Lord, now that you would meet with us. I pray, Lord, that you'll give me preaching strength right now, give me clarity of mind, conviction of heart, and concision of speech, that I may speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and that your people may be built up, O oh God. And Lord, any fruit that comes out of this time together in your word, let it redound to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So we continue in our Sermon on the Mount series here, and we see that Jesus is calling his disciples to a different kind and quality of righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, of course, as we learned, are content with an external and a formal sort of obedience. But, te but Jesus teaches that God's demands are for an inward righteousness of the heart. It is what Pastor Taylor described to us as he waxed poetic about washing dishes last week. That's a weird guy, am I right? Um, you have to feel the shock, though, of what Jesus is telling us here. The scribes and the Pharisees were regarded as the most spiritual people of the day. But Jesus says their righteousness is damning. Indeed, unless righteousness exceeds what the people know about the religious leaders, they will not enter the kingdom of God. And here's the startling point. Hell will be filled with superficial religious people. Those who are guilty of self-deception and self-justification. Now, that point needed some clarification, some explanation. So Jesus turns to six different examples, or what scholars call six antitheses. And we find that in verses 21 through 48, in order to make his point very clear. And it follows a particular formula we see in our text. First, he states the command. You have heard it said. And then he explains the intent of the command, the heart behind the command, the purpose, the spirit of the command. But I say to you. And then he calls for radical action. 
He says, leave your gift at the altar and be reconciled to your brother. Or tear out your eye or cut off your hand. Remember last week we talked about that first example during the children's sermon where we learned that there is more than one way to murder someone. Namely, that when we seek to demean someone or tarnish their reputation is to destroy them, even if by the tongue. The second antithesis is found here in our passage this morning, verses 27 through 32, wherein Jesus teaches on how we are to live faithfully within the marriage bond, how we are to have a marriage as God intended, lifelong and free from adultery and divorce. Once again, Jesus states the command, and then he explains its intent. See it there in verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus here is aiming for the heart and assaulting the notion that all God is looking for is not having intercourse with someone under than one's wife. Note, however, that Jesus is not suggesting that the sins of the heart are the same as committing adultery. Rather, he is driving at the fact that real righteousness is found not merely in not committing adultery. He's aiming for righteousness that relates to the desires and the intentions of the heart. So what exactly is Jesus condemning here? The word used for lust here in the original Greek, epithumia, simply means to desire. But desire can be good or bad. Whether it is good or bad depends on how that desire aligns with God's revealed will. For example, we don't understand a potential candidate to the priesthood to be in sin who is desiring epithumia to the work of an overseer, right? In that case, the desire is a God-honoring desire. Therefore, it's not sinful. But on the other hand, we have the sin of lust, which is what Jesus is getting after in our text this morning. In our greed, we, we crave or desire something that is not consistent with God's revealed will to us or what God has provided for us. Simply stated, Sinful lust is to desire something that we believe to be good outside of what God has called good. It is to put our own will and pleasure above God's. It is to desire something that is not yours or to desire something solely for self-gratification or to desire something expressly forbidden. Hence why this is closely connected to both the seventh and tenth commandment that forbade adultery and coveting your neighbor's wife. God has said that sex is to occur within the framework of marriage, and marriage is the God-defined institution of union between one man and one woman. Therefore, any sexual lust is a craving to experience the intimate pleasures reserved for the marriage, but apart from this sacred institution. It, it pursues enjoyment apart from and in contrast to God's clearly revealed will. So when a man sits and quietly fixes his eyes and hearts upon a woman, whether it be on a computer 
or television or in photo or in person or in his imagination. And then he begins to desire her sexually. This is sinful lust. The man has lustfully craved sexual satisfaction apart from what God has called good. The structure of the language in our text here is in such a way it suggests that the focus is on internal intent. To look at a woman in such a way that desire for her is aroused in him. So Jesus is not just concerned about the physical. Indeed he is, but not just that. He's also concerned about the heart. Specifically, he's concerned about the kind of heart whose intent creates lust. And you know, sin always begins with the heart. And sin always affects the heart. I mean, why do we sit and meditate about how successful we'll be or how people will like us? Why, why do we strain our necks to covet and long for what we do not have? Why, why do women envy after another woman's beauty or our style or, or wardrobe or our sense of humor or mothering skills or even professional skills? Why does a man find himself sinfully staring at a woman who is not his wife? Why, why does he find himself daydreaming and fantasizing about how he was, would orchestrate his life if he were sovereign? It is because we're longing for something at the heart. At the heart level, there is an appraisal that takes place. Each one of us, whether Christian or not, are governed by our hearts. It's been rightly said that our hearts are the control tower of the person, right? It is the seed of our emotions and what governs our actions. Our hearts are confronted with stuff and they confront us with stuff. The natural fallen tendency then is to appraise stuff through the lenses of self-exaltation rather than divine exaltation. We naturally fasten our lust upon that which seems to provide us with immediate pleasure, comfort, happiness, or Honor, the shiny hooks of the enemy dangle before us in the form of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Our hearts are lured after what we want and think we need. Is that not your experience? Because it is mine. It is also the testimony of Scripture. See, there in James Chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, the text says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do you, do you see the stages of sin there? God isn't the one tempting anyone to sin. In fact, the devil isn't the one tempting anyone to sin. There is no external source that tempts us to sin. In the case of our text in Matthew 5 and James' passage, they fit well. Remember, I said the word usage for lust is desire. What then is the cause of temptation? It's nothing more than our own desire. It's not the pretty girl or the handsome man. It's not pressure. It's not stress. It's not anything external. It is our own desire. 
Desire leads to sin. Being conceived and born and left unchecked and allowed to grow up brings forth death. Beloved, we need to stop blaming others and our circumstances for our sin. The devil didn't make you do it. Nor did anyone else make you do it. It was you and you alone. No one makes you sin. Your environment doesn't make you sin. Nothing external makes you sin. Sin comes from your own desire. Remember David and Bathsheba? We heard it read earlier in the Old Testament reading. Now, it may have been that David's first glance upon Bathsheba was an accidental one. But whatever the nature of that initial glance might have been, the Bible describes David's action as a lingering gaze. He's saying that, that she was beautiful to behold. Clearly, David's first glance at this bathing woman became a lingering glaze and eventually an expression of an immoral desire for her. And then his lust for her became expressed in action. He inquired about her. He called for her, and then he slept with her. And just as the Bible doesn't shy away from telling us the truth about David's sin, neither does it shy away from telling us the truth about that sin's consequences. She became pregnant. And we'll follow with a series of lies and cover-ups that led to David arranging for the murder of Bathsheba's husband, one of his very own mighty men. When finally confronted, David repented. But, but, but the whole rest of his life, from that point on, was the story of a man suffering the terrible, unwanted consequences of sin. Death. And James tells us it all came from David's own desire, which gave birth to sin, being fully grown, literally, literally brought forth death. Everyone who succumbs to lust does so on their own accord. And the result is death. Our unbiblical appraisal of and pursuit of stuff has a declared end. And it is death. Seriously, brothers, how would you change your viewing habits if as soon as you thought an impure thought, you knew that you were going to simultaneously explode? Sisters, I wonder if you would sit and talk about how you wish you looked like so-and-so and and be like so-and-so if at the same time you were struck dead. While it may seem like I'm engaging in irrelevant hyperbole, remember that in the matters of sin, we are talking about death. Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is what? Death. What then are we to do? Indeed, what can we do in a society that tolerates lust as sport or lust as advertising? And this is where Jesus really breaks us. He presses on the intention of the heart, and then he calls for radical action. Pluck out your eye. Cut off your hand to emphasize the serious nature of this. Jesus calls for radical obedience. 
But friends, is Jesus really telling us to gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands if we struggle with sexual sin or any sin, really? Well, Jesus uses that perfectly here to drive home the point that we must nip sin in the bud before it grows and brings forth death. Paul says in Romans 13, 13 through 14, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Again, we see that word. Paul uses the same word that James and Jesus uses. So that means to overcome sin, the desire must be overcome in the beginning stages by not allowing any opportunity for the desire itself to manifest into sin. But if we're being honest this morning, and I hope I am from the pulpit, sinful lust, if we, you know, we want to be rid of it. But at the same time, we don't want to be rid of it. Many times when it comes down to doing the radical thing to take away as many temptations as possible, we're not willing to be radical. For example, if you struggle with pornography, get rid of whatever device you view it on. If you view it on your computer, get rid of the computer. If you view it on your phone, get rid of your phone. Whatever it takes is Jesus' attitude here. Well, you might say, you can't really be serious about me getting rid of my, of my computer. I need it for work. I, I need it for school. Okay, well, then use the public library. <laughs> or use the computer at work, where the network is monitored and then the firewall prevents access to illicit material. Or maybe you say, well, I can't get rid of my phone because, because what? Like people in the 90s didn't get along well without a smartphone? <laughs> Friends, Jesus says overcoming sinful lust requires radical measures. Are you willing to get radical when it comes to overcoming sin? Are you all talk and fluff? Friends, fighting sin is fighting a war. Your very soul is at stake. Kill sin or it will be killing you. I love to ask people sometimes, how is the battle going? And then they look at me where, what are you talking about, Willis? I'm not in the military. But friends, the battle is for holiness and against the exaltation of self through our own sin. The Christian life is not a stroll through the field to pick flowers and sip on lemonade. It is a battle. Gird yourself up for war. But again, truth be told, to simply get rid of your computer, in our case, or close the blinds in David's case. It's a very good strategy and examples of things we all must do, especially at first. However, Jesus asks more of us in this text. Let me put it like this. You can still sin one-handed and still sin with one good eye. How then can we make real, lasting progress in this area? This, this is where Jesus breaks us in the passage. Why do I say that? Because there are few sins that are more common and cultural than these. Sinful lust is part of the air we breathe. It, it is part and parcel of our culture and our politics, our entertainment, our relationships, even our religious institutions. 
So if you're feeling like you're about to drown and sink, you're right where Jesus wants you to be. Because this entire section ultimately ends with Jesus saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And before you throw up your hands and say, I, I, I can't, I can't do it. Remember that this is only part of Jesus' message. Eventually, he says, come to me. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Abide in me, he says in John chapter 15. And I in you, apart from me, you can do nothing. To know real righteousness should drive us to run to Jesus. If you think I can't do this, if you think I can't get rid of all my laptops and phone, if you think, oh, if I just do that, is that what wins me holiness? And then I have this holiness thing down, then you're not seeing what Jesus is saying. But if you're feeling within you, oh, Jesus, help me. Help me, Lord. And you cry out in anguish like Paul does in Romans chapter 7. That which I want to do, I don't do. And that which I do, don't want to do is what I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Then that is the essence of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus' aim is to shock us out of our superficial religion. And just because it doesn't resolve it, and these texts doesn't mean they not resolve it later. In fact, Matthew aims to show us that Jesus is the only one who can save you from your own heart. And Jesus is the only one who can give you any level of victory over your sin. We need the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus, to invade our hearts. And after Paul declares his wretchedness in Romans 7, 24, he follows it up. In verse 25, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. After declaring, oh, wretched man that I am, he then said, thank you, Jesus. In other words, the only remedy for self-deception and self-justification is the truth of God's word and the justification in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus, he aims to shatter our superficial religion, but not leave us destroyed. Rather, he aims to point us to himself as the only one who is able to save from sin and death, as the only one who can form and conform our hearts and our desires from anger and lust into reconciliation and sacrificial love. How then do we overcome sinful lust? Indeed, this is the key, friends. God is the very essence of beauty. Furthermore, he defines what beauty is. We, we have God revealing himself in the scriptures to be the very pinnacle of beauty. And in his beauty, he eclipses all things. I mean, contemplate the reality that God does not decay or fade. He is just as fresh, just as beautiful, just as glorious today as he was when Paul preached the glories of Christ, when Jesus walked the earth, when David penned his songs of praise, when Moses cried out for a glimpse of his glory, when Abraham believed, when Adam and Eve walked with him in the garden, when the angels sang of his glory during creation, and when the Trinity enjoyed eternal fellowship and worship prior to the creation of the world. God 
God is beautiful yesterday, today, and forever. Now, now add to that that his beauty will never fade. He will always be glorious. This beautiful, this appealing, this attractive, he is the eternal God whose beauty is eternally untarnished. The Father has spoken from heaven as to this appraisal of Jesus, is it not? He said in Matthew 3, 17, after the baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And further, Matthew writes that Jesus is the eternal delight of the father with whom he is well pleased. Matthew 12, 18, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. The Bible says Jesus is infinitely beautiful, and worthy to be the unceasing object of our satisfaction and delight. Do you agree? Can you look at Jesus and say, this is my beloved Savior with whom I am well pleased? Because if you do, then your cravings and lust for the things of this world and of your flesh will be starved out by your relentless enjoyment and pursuit of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can throw your computer out the window, but that won't kill your lust. You can never go to the mall or to the gym, but that won't kill your lust. You can cut out your eyes, but that won't kill your lust. You can move to a cave in Montana, but that won't kill your lust. You can employ legalism, but that won't kill your lust. All of these things fall short because they are external amputations when we need a heart transformation. No, notice that the Apostle Paul tells believers to put off such things as lustful cravings, Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice the verse says, therefore, the action of mortification or putting to death the deeds of the flesh to include sinful lust pivots on what has just been said before. What then is therefore, therefore? See the immediately preceding passage in verses 1 through 4, Colossians 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You are putting to death lustful passions with your ceaseless passion for Jesus. The text says, keep seeking the things above. Set your mind on things above. It is this, this seeing and this savoring of Jesus Christ, as John Piper would put it, that brings about the holiness that is required. The mortification of sin, the putting to death of sinful lust comes from a persistent, relentless, intentional pursuit of the things above. These are things that are consistent with the new creation that God has inaugurated by Christ the King. But there is more. You see there in Colossians 3, 1, 
there's another therefore. What is that therefore, therefore? Colossians 3 is actually coming off the heels of Colossians 1 and 2, where Paul had just finished declaring the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus over and against everything else. It's as if the Apostle Paul has packed a semi-trailer full of Christological truth, and it didn't get stuck in Canada. It came right to you, and it drove it to your house and dropped it in your living room. He means to make you marvel at the glorious, infinite worth of Jesus Christ. And as a result, what the Christian sees is that all of the apparent competition and rivals to Jesus in your life, they are completely eclipsed by his resume. <laughs> he is seen to be the absolute supreme and sufficient one. Therefore, he is the only choice for your worship. Is your desire because to see Jesus as supreme and sufficient is to see everything else as insufficient and lacking. To see stuff as worthy of your lust is to see Jesus as lacking. To see goodness outside of what God has called good is to praise Jesus and find him lacking. We need to think like this, y'all. We need to live like this. Our lust. For selfish pleasure does have consequences. Whether we're talking about sexual lust, material lust, professional lust, or whatever, we're talking about the removal of attributes of God and the imputation of the attributes of supremacy and sufficiency to stuff. And this is the height of idolatry. See, this is why it is so critical to be in the word of God daily, to find ourselves in subjection to the divine word that we may have our minds transformed and renewed according to the will of God. So that we would think his thoughts after him. So that we will praise that which is excellent and reject that which is sinful. Furthermore, we are to drive the word deep into our hearts through prayer and contemplative meditation because we are a people that need our hearts to be broken. We need to be reminded of the absolute beauty and attractiveness of God that we might see and savor his supremacy, his sufficiency in all things, that we may desire him. Is this then not the irony of overcoming lust? That we defeat lust by lust. That we desire not sinful things, but we desire what is supreme and sovereign in Jesus Christ. Because, friends, Jesus is more beautiful still than anyone you could see on the Internet or on the street. Because at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore than the momentary gratification of your flesh. Jesus is more precious still than anything that this world has to offer. Oh, that our desires would be for God and not for the fleeting passions of the flesh. Truly, this one thing have I desired, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold, behold the beauty of the Lord. Oh, lift up your eyes, church, from the flesh that will lead to death and destruction. 
Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Behold his beauty. Gaze upon him. Look upon the resplendent glory of our risen Lord. He is beautiful to behold. Let your desires be conformed to the desires of God. Let us pray. time. Turn your eyes. Turn your eyes. Look full. Look full. Look full in his wonderful face. 